Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Joe Ramirez, and you're listening to Beyond the Grid. Hi all, Tom Clarkson here with the latest edition of your favourite podcast, It's Beyond the Grid, presented by Bose QuietComfort 35-2 wireless headphones. My guest this week for a special summer break edition of the show is someone whose name may not be instantly recognisable to everyone, but he's got more Formula One stories than almost anyone I've ever met. He worked in the sport for more than 40 years and witnessed many significant moments in F1 history from the inside. He was also good friends with many of the sport's biggest figures. I'm talking about Joe Ramirez, a man whose first F1 job was back in the 1960s when he supported fellow Mexican Ricardo Rodriguez. That journey took him to Europe and on a path that saw him work with the likes of Jackie Stewart at Tyrrell, Emerson Fittipaldi at Copasuka, and Ayrton Senna, Alain Prost and Mika Hakkinen at McLaren. Joe's career was both colourful and long, and at no point, not even at the height of Senna and Prost feuding in 1989 when he was McLaren's team coordinator, did he lose his love for the sport or the people that work in it. Joe's strongest association is with McLaren, where he worked for 18 years. But when he attended the recent Hungarian Grand Prix, we caught up in, yes, you guessed it, the McLaren motorhome for a chat about his life and his most colourful memories. His passion for the sport continues to reverberate through every sentence. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Joe, welcome to Beyond the Grid. It's lovely to have you on the show. And my goodness, when I talk to you, I don't almost know where to start because your career in motorsport has spanned 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, noughties. I mean, do you have a favourite era? Oh, I think... That's an easy question because without a doubt was the 80s and the end of the 80s that uh, team that we have with McLaren, the Untouchables, I mean, Senna and Prost, we won 15 out of 16 races. That's without a doubt the best era. But I'm lucky. I born where I born. Therefore, I have the, four, um, the 40 best years of the sport, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s and the 90s. I retired in 2001, and then by then, you know, the money is overtaking the sport, the regulation, everything has changed so much that people with, like Ayrton Senna, looking up there and he's turning on his grave because the sport is a lot more different than when I started. That's really interesting. You think Ayrton would be turning in his grave at the, the, the conditions in Formula One now? Yes, I think more about the, the punishment about it. The, the, the racing has to be more uh, clinical. You know, you can, we have seen just what happened in the last few races between uh, Verstappen and, and uh, Leclerc. And when Leclerc said, okay, if this is going to be the rules now on, I'll, I'll do the same. And he did. So it's good. This is what it's all about. I mean, 
Let them race. Is let that them your race. Yeah. Let mm. them race. I mean, mm. we are in a circuit where everybody said it was difficult to overtake. But uh, for Ayrton, there was no circuit difficult to overtake. You know, it was the man that if you see a gap, he'd take it. And he tells you, you know, if you see a gap and you don't take it, you're no longer a racing driver. And it's, uh, that is the essence of the sport. And of course, it's going to be an accident because one has to want to overtake and the other doesn't want to let overtaking. Therefore, every now and again, there'll be a collision. And uh, why to create so much punishment and... But anyway, I'm, I'm, I don't want to sound, uh, you know, older than this is how it was, but this is how it is now. Well, Joe, let's talk more then about that period with McLaren. We'll come back to your time, the earlier years. But So you spent 18 years with McLaren. How did it first come about? How did the opportunity with the team come about in 1983? Well, uh, actually, a year before that, a year or a couple of years, I'm not sure, uh, Ron... Ron and I were very good friends when he was started as a mechanic and as I was a mechanic and so on. Then so you become... knew Ron Dennis when he worked for Cooper back in the 60s? Yes. Oh, did yeah, you? Yes. Right. And then uh, um, there was a period we used to play squash together. Every time we have a weekend free, either in Maiden where I used to live or in walking where Ron lived, you know. And Who won? Um, we were actually very, very equal. Sometimes he wins and, you know, Ron is the worst loser in the world. So, but uh, it was good. And then we used to go and eat with my wife at my place or with Lisa in walking. In fact, it was Sally, not Lisa at the time. You know. And um, anyway, then one year he got, uh, he then got into Formula 2 or I can't remember. And he got enough sponsorship that he, he could have another team, and he told me. To. And by then, I was a team manager with uh, Shadow, and I, I, and I was enjoying it, having a good time, and and uh, and I thought, no, I don't, I won't do it, and so I didn't. And then the following year, when when oh no, before the before the engine went turbo, when he took over McLaren in 1981, in 82, he said, oh, you must come and work for me and uh, do a nice job for you and challenging and everything and by then I was with Seodoro Racing also team manager Seodoro Racing I did my own decisions and so on and I thought well it was Teddy Mayer um, Tyler Alexander there was a lot of people at top when am I going to be there in that you know it seems suddenly from a small team going to a big team even if he gives me a good job or whatever, I, I felt, no, I said, John, Ron, I'm quite happy where I am. So I didn't take it. The following year, you have to have a turbo. If you didn't have a turbo, you, you, you were dead. You know, we didn't have a turbo. No way we could ever have a turbo. So in fact, that was our last year. I had opportunities to go to the United States, but I didn't want to do that. And I was really thinking, my God, stupid me. I should have taken the job with Ron, you know. But I, I was too proud to call him. But the phone rang again, and and uh, Ron said, "So what are you doing? You don't have a turbo engine. What are you going? No, yes, Ron, but we want to do this and that. I was starting playing hard to get, you know. Oh, come and see me. So I went to see him, and I had a meeting with him, and a meeting with John Barner, and that was it. That was in December, and my f- official day was the day of the Christmas party of McLaren, and uh, my first uh, my first kind of job. Uh, well, we had a turbo engine, we had a Porsche engine then. Um, part of my job was to the relation between Porsche and McLaren, because we used to pay, you know, 
Mansour tag was playing the engines and we used to pay for every nut and bolt and washer, you know, so that was part of my job. So you worked for eight different teams, Formula One teams? Yes, How for sure. different was Ron's team to anything you'd done before? Oh, incredible. I mean, there was a... Well, in the, all the teams I work in Formula One, when I was a team manager, ATS, Theodoro, Shadow, and I always have to make sure that we had enough money to keep on racing. That was the biggest problem I have. And I got to McLaren and Ron said, whatever we need, you buy it. Don't worry about the money. I worry about the money. Whatever we need, you buy it. We, have, we want to have the best for the teams. We were the best, the best uh, team in Formula One to have the Ford rig test bed for the car. You know, so. I said, Ron, this is expensive. How much is that? It's about a million dollars. You need it? We're going to make us better? Buy it. Don't worry about the money. It was just like such a breath of fresh air, you know? I never had to worry about the money. And, you know, and our motto then was work hard and play hard. And by God, we did play hard. Did, did Ron was, play hard as well? Oh, Ron was the first one in those days. Ron changed so much after that. But in those days, he was... Oh, number one. He was, and then if he had to leave when the uh, races, uh, overseas races, where I had to stay with the team and make sure everything was done till the end, and Ron and the engineers left before, he always said, you know, make sure the boys have a good time, you know. And my credit card was never, ever queried. You know, we had a good time. And um, Ron has been criticized by many things, but uh, but he wasn't a guy, okay, he had a plane, but he didn't have a boat, and you know, he had a house in the south of France, okay. But the team never, ever missed anything. We never have to um, save money on the team. Uh, so well, and the results in this business, show. exactly. You had some great drivers, um, didn't you? When you were at McLaren, I mean, I'm thinking of Lauda and Prost and... Senna and Rosberg and Hakkinen. Who left the greatest impression on you out of those guys? Well, for sure, Alain and Ayrton. It was very similar between them. And, and uh, okay, there is a lot of difference. But there was, they never seemed to sweat. They never seemed to try hard. It comes so natural for them. It was amazing. I never understand, like... Uh, Sometimes uh, Mansell did uh, 17.3, whatever, and, and then um, Alain goes and then did 17.2. Jeez, and Mansell go a little bit quicker again, and then Alain goes again, and another thing I said, how the hell you can just do one thing? You have to do is half a second, but just, just what he needed. And it's, you know, no wonder they call him the professor, right? He was so precise and technical and uh, I always say that the basic difference between the two of them when Alain had a car 100% to his life it was unbeatable uh, Ayrton couldn't touch him um, but how often you get a car that you have you like it 100% it's very seldom you may be 40% of the time 30% 40 if you're lucky no? While Ayrton, if the car wasn't right, on those days you could do as many laps as you want for qualified. So he said, okay, I can just leave the car and I adapt to the car and change his driving to adapt to the car. And at the end, it ended up to be maybe a little bit quicker. But if the car was perfect, never. Like uh, at Paul Ricard, once we um, 
you know, in those days, you have a good practice and then Goodyear give you four sets of qualifiers, the sticky ones, one lap special for qualified. And uh, um, Alain got the first time, did one lap, then a, a time lap, he came in, stopped, and it was top, it was on pole. Take his jeans, take his overalls, put his jeans and his t-shirt. What are you doing? We've got another three sets of tires. If he can do a better lap than this, he can. He deserves the pole. I can't. This is my best lap. Bloody Ayrton, I see him on his t-shirt in the pit lane, and he, well, oh, he really get oh. mad about it and trying to beat him. He never did. So Lang had the pole, but he was like, he was that sort of thing was uh, the fight between them in in a good mood. That's what it was so good because uh, then in Portugal, uh, Ayrton did the same to Alain. <laughs> Oh, got changed midway yeah, through. Changed. You did a quick lap. You really? changed, and yeah. When was Prost at his peak at McLaren? I mean, he he made his debut with the team in 1980, then rejoined in 1984, didn't he? When do you think he was at his best? Was he was he still at his peak when Senna joined in '88, or do you think he'd plateaued? Or mm, no, 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 for sure he was. He was at his peak, for sure. I heard Nicky Lauda say once he'd love to have seen the 84-spec Prost go up against Ayrton Senna. But... Yeah, but mind you, Keke Rosberg, when uh, Ayrton, no, Ron tried very hard to get Ayrton, and he couldn't get it. They pay more in Lotus and stay. And uh, Keke Rosberg, which has already driven with a line in the same with, with us, he said, oh, it's the best thing that could happen to Ayrton. Ayrton, there's so much they talk about Ayrton. He comes and drives with Porsche, with Porsche, with Prost. Uh, Ayrton wouldn't be anybody. He would really... Rosberg that, rated him that much. Yeah, he, he rated Prost like the best guy he'd ever compete with. And the good thing with Prost, he never kind of said anything to Ron, why do we get him him or get somebody else? Or, you know, you know, if he's supposedly to be the best, he accepted with open arms and he said, well, he will make me better if he's that good. So why did the wheels fall off their relationship? I know people talk about Imola 89, but obviously things have been bubbling away prior to that. Why do you think it fell apart? Yeah, well, really, the, the, the drop that got off the glass, like they said, it was in Imola for sure because Ayrton did not respect the, uh, the agreement. But, you know, before that, he was always saying, Ayrton always thought that uh, we were giving Prost better deals and better engines or whatever, although the engines were always the same. We were all the five engines there for a race, and, and it was the mechanic that chose them, so nothing to do with them at all. So one day, uh, the mechanic from Prost, choose the engine for Ayrton and the other one the contrary so the cars were two drops of water really completely the same but you know um, there was two difficult personalities characters um, they always thought that the other one was getting a better deal it was one race in Silverstone where we had a lot of problems with the oil tank and we keep blowing engines and blowing engines and then we had one that it didn't blow because we were changing the oil tank all the time 
and he happened to be in Prost. And, ah, you gave him the best engine and the best That's what oil Senna tank. Said. And, and not to me. And said, no, but how do we know? We're just trying the difference in each car to find out the good one. And that produced two. For, no, he wouldn't take it. You know, ah, bloody hell, it was, it was uh, tough. Ayrton was much more tougher than that. What about your relationship with them? Because you were team coordinator. So what kind of things did you do for them? And was it difficult for you to not take sides? Um, yes, it, it, it was. But then again, I didn't, as I said, I only did the, the things that benefit uh, them. And I don't, I didn't do contracts wrong, did all the big things and the contracts and that. I never, never even see them. But, uh, you know, I just make sure that they have all their gear, their uh, driving suit, their shoes, their gloves, their helmets. I arrange all that with the different manufacturers that they have chosen and organize their car hearts or the courtesy car hearts and uh, airplanes when they wanted to go somewhere. And really, I, I, uh, I didn't got involved in anything more than than that and I tried to do the same for both and and when things got a little bit sticky and they started I tried to to make a joke between them and um, sort of soften the the problem and see where but uh, would one of them ask you what's he doing how's he getting oh, home was there a bit of that going yeah, on yeah yes yes <laughs> yes for sure it was uh, there were two two circuits uh, Monaco and, and Spa Two circles with a line pros was the standard there and he set the rules. And in both circuits, uh, I think Ayrton was about a second quicker, both testing, and it was just unbelievable. He just, uh, when Ayrton get to Formula One, Prost was number one. So it was Prost, the one that he wanted to beat. He didn't care about Mansell, Pique, Rosberg, no, Prost, you know. So any time we test, you know, qualifying for a race or practicing, you know, what uh, what springs have a pros and what rear wing have pros and everything, it's, he just wanted to know and then try it and very often change things and it wasn't any quicker than pros. He said, well, just put the car same as pros and then I can beat it. And so it was, um, but in those two particular circuits, he was, uh, I remember in Spa, he, Ayrton, after qualified, he got himself in such a trance that he needs, we leave it alone. He used to go and sit in the track for five minutes to, I don't know, get down the adrenaline that he put to do that quick lap. Um, and we leave him there till he got his, uh, changed his clothes and so on. And he was sitting in the floor of the track and Alain and I were stopped at the other end of the track. I was looking at uh, Ayrton and Prost was kind of looking at me and we were looking at the sheets and he said, where would he be so quick? He said, I can't believe how quick is it for all places in here, Alain was saying, you know. And then Alain said, God, he's fucking quick. And as he said that, Ayrton was listening and Alain didn't know that Ayrton was there. He was listening and he just winked. Wink and eye, it's just like saying, Lord, I got him now, I'm quicker than him, you know. It was all sort of uh, little games between them. And uh, it's like he said, okay, I wanted to be the best in the world. Alain is the best and I have beaten him. So You mentioned Monaco. I do want to ask you about Monaco 88. 
Senna did that amazing qualifying lap and then he crashes in the race when he's got he's what is he 40 seconds up the road or whatever he is is that a defining race in the career of Ayrton Senna do you think do you think he came away from that disappointment and changed his approach in any way or how, how I, I what, what are your so. memories of the race as well I think so for sure because by then it was some of the first races that started racing against Prost and he was obsessed about Prost so having made the pole completely stratospheric huh? and Gerhard was after he Gerhard blocked a line for 50 odd laps or whatever it was and so he built up a lead of 56 seconds I think and then uh, finally a line got rid of Gerhard and started getting faster and faster and record lap after record lap and he was getting the seconds every lap of course certain see it and a line second and he's gaining on me so starting himself lap after lap and record lap etc and Ron is shouting to him he's never going to catch you no way it's 50 seconds you got in front slow down slow down concentrate and and he just wouldn't hear it. He just process behind. Oh, he had to go quicker and quicker. And he got there and he missed, he missed the gear, missed the gear, missed the corner, hit the, the guardrail on the inside and he went on the other side and that was it. His race was finished. And then we, nobody could see him till about nine in the, in the evening. I keep calling and it was this Brazilian lady that used to look after the flat and made the food when he was there. And uh, the phone didn't answer at all. All in the end. How did but, you know he was there? Well, where he crashed, it was very convenient, almost in the entrance of his apartment. Oh, okay, okay. Avenue in, Princess Grace. Avenue down Princess there. Grace. Yeah, sure. yeah. So he just walked there. So and you knew he was there, and not picking up the yeah. phone. Okay. Yeah. And eventually, about nine, ten o'clock at night, Isabel got the phone and said, "Oh no, Senor Ayrton, no, no." He's not home. He's not. Oh yeah, for sure he's there. Where else could he be? Come on, he's, uh, Isabel, please tell him it's, it's Joe. Actually, she knew me because the night before I had dinner in her flat there, and uh, I said, um, "It's Joe. Please tell him he will take the phone." He said, "Don't tell him he's wrong. Tell him it's Joe." <laughs> <laughs> and eventually, I could hear Ayrton. Okay, give me the phone and. Uh, and Ayrton was almost still in tears then. He said, oh, I must be the most idiot on the world. He said, uh, I don't know what happened. The steering wheel came out of my hand. You know, when he hit the inside barrier, I think. Uh, uh, but yes, he's really, I think psychologically, he, he, he had to change from then on and say, well, Prost is another driver. I don't have to get so obsessed about him. Sometimes I will beat him, sometimes he will beat me. But it's better uh, keep cool and finish the races, don't make mistakes, I think. What language did you talk to Senna in? I speak always in, if we were alone, in Portuñolo, half Portuguese, half uh, Spanish. But you had your own language? Yes, kind of, yeah. And uh, because he, he speaks a lot of language as well. And uh, but when we were with the team, oh, uh, every time Rome uh, here talking, the official language of the team is English. Okay, so. Yeah. <laughs> 
With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. So when the relationship fell apart in 89, was it always Prost who was going to end up leaving the team? Or do you think there was ever a chance it could have been Senna who'd gone on? No, I think, no. By then, I think it was clear to align that uh, he was the past and Ayrton was the future, as far as Ron is concerned. So I think that uh, for align was to continue with McLaren or try to go elsewhere. And he had the opportunity to go with Ferrari and couple we try so hard to to keep him but but you know one thing I can relate it you know he said you like your job say yeah, I love my job okay I love my job too he said I like racing I love racing but if I have to race against Ayrton on the same team it's not it's not pleasant anymore it's I don't feel right and don't frighten of him he's not going to meet him I can show I have beaten him before but I like to enjoy my work if I don't enjoy it it's, uh, you cannot perform this in the, at the same level and I could understand that you know to me I've never ever had a job I mean this is a way of life it was my hobby and somebody paid me for it so I did uh, understand that and but um, yeah no we couldn't it, it, great shame and and then the way they end up, you know, I used to talk so many times with Ayrton and say, look, uh, Alain and Ferrari, very often you're going to be in the podium together. You know, you may as well finish the field and shake hands and be friends. I wouldn't shake hands that bloody frog ever, you know. He, he didn't relax at all. His attitude no. towards Alain didn't relax at all. But then the last year, when when he retired, Prost, and he was not... I believe they even had lunch together on that Imola. Whether Imola, it was Imola on, 94? Yeah, whether it was the day of the race or the day before. I believe they had lunch in the motorhome. Was, the was, your, was your relationship with Senna as close in 94 once he left McLaren? Did you stay in touch? Yes, yes. Well, yeah, we did. And in fact, the day... the. When he died, the night before, he said, um, I, I, can I ask you a favor? We still, yeah, for sure, anything, you know. I said, we, we, we're working on different flags, but we're still friends. And uh, oh, he said, could you get me a helicopter to take me to Fort Lee, where I had my, where he normally put his plane? Because in, in Imola, sorry, Imola, in Williams, we don't have anybody to look after the drivers, to do the things for the drivers, you know. We may be the highest paid employer at Williams, but they don't look after you at all, you know. And, uh, and you know everybody, you speak Italian, and could you get, yeah, sure. And so I got the, the helicopter, there was no mobile phone, but I got a helicopter, and then I come in, I give him the, License or the plate of the helicopter and where it was going to be and the name of the pilot and all that and yeah was quite happy and then I saw him at the drivers meeting there used to be a drivers meeting before the race 
And he was happy to say, no, in the warm-up, the car is much better now, I really like. Because he, he was on pole, he was on pole, not the Williams. He was completely overdriving that car. But he said, no, it's, the car is, is better. So we shake hands, that was the last time I spoke to him until, until the accident. But like Michael Schumacher said, you know, he was behind and he saw, he saw the way that Ayrton was driving. And he said, there's no way, he's not gonna keep this driving the whole race. It's totally out driving the car. So I, I just sit behind and, and wait till I get tired. And That's interesting, isn't it? So the body language of the car would, have, would suggest that Ayrton was still pushing, 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 because I was gonna ask you, some people have claimed that Senna was contemplating retirement at the time. What's your take on that? No, no. Of course, he was uh, very upset whenever he had a big accident and with Ratzenberger, he was really... But there's so many stories, like you said, that uh, oh, the night before he thought that, many, that uh, Professor Watkins said, uh, Ayrton, you don't have to race, you don't want, you know, why do you need to keep on racing? And, I don't know. Yes, it's true to say that it was a little bit disenchanting the way that the Formula One was going on. Yes, like um, Sebastian Vettel is now, but that he had thoughts of retiring. No, I don't think so. And if he was going to retire, he wasn't going to retire with Williams. He would probably go with Ferrari and retire with Ferrari. Well, he had um, dinner with Luca de Montezemolo mm. on the Wednesday before Imola. Um, something that Luca yeah. told us on, yeah. on the Beyond the Grid podcast, actually. Um, so did you go to Senna's funeral in Sao Paulo? No, I had my ticket. I had everything ready to go. And the night before, I spoke with his mother and his father. And uh, we couldn't even speak, you know, we were trying to. And we were both crying. And I said, and in the end, I said, bloody hell, what am I going to do that? You know, he was a hero in Brazil, the, the most beloved uh, person in Brazil and uh, everybody's going to be crying and sad and you know it's, uh, no I, I'd, uh, I don't want to be there and part of that so I cancel I didn't go but I mean Joe death you worked through an era of Formula One where death was wasn't commonplace but it happened a lot I mean if I mention some names you know both Rodriguez brothers Ricardo I know you were yeah. very close with in particular but then you were working on Francois Sever's car in 73 and of course he yeah. died at Watkins Glen and then the Senna and did you ever struggle to keep going did you ever fall out of love with the sport because of what was happening to these people um probably when Ricardo died yes I really thought wow what am I you know because even Count Volpi, Volpi de Misurata which he was going to help Ricardo in his future uh, and he was building these ATS new cars. He stopped doing that because he was very close with Ricardo and he said, oh, I don't want to be part of uh, someone losing his life because I was, I'm producing the car. And that's, when Ricardo died, I had a big depression and I thought, oh, do I really want to do this or go back to Mexico? No. But then I thought, no, this is, this is what I like it and I'm sure that Ricardo would like me to continue and whatever. Um, and then after that, I had so many, not just oof, all the people that were with Ferrari, Lorenzo Bandini, which I was a good friend with him. Uh, then he was my Parks, Scarfiotti, you name it. And then Lucky Kastner with Maserati, 
so many people they've gone. And it's amazing. I didn't realize that till somebody that read my book, he said, wow, how many people have died during your period? It, yes. I mean, that was, that's, that's how it was, you know. It, it's incredibly that then we had a period with Elio de Angelis died in Destiny, Paul Ricard, and then we had 12 years, and then we had the worst weekend the Formula One ever seen when Ayrton and Rosenberger were, were killed. You must yeah, have a it's, huge it's, passion for the sport, but Joe, did you ever want to drive yourself? I did, I did. And in Mexico, I used to drive uh, go-karts and um, saloon cars, and I was quite good, but... Um, if I ever have a regret in my life, it's not to carry on pushing to become a driver. But when I come to Italy, I had nothing. I left Mexico with $300 and I struggled to, to live for a few months with that until I got a paid job at Maserati. And then I, um, it was just... Uh, but yes, if I regret anything, maybe I should have tried harder turn. And it, was it while you were racing the saloons and the carts that you met yes. Ricardo Rodriguez? Ricardo, yes. What kind because of a guy uh, was he? I mean... Oh, there, he was... I tell you, he was a guy like... I would say Francois Severt, uh, full of fun. Full of, you know, Pedro was very introverted, but Ricardo was full of fun all the time, ready for a job, ready for a... Uh, and and he was one of those uh, with a talent from birth. He didn't have to try hard. Someone like Graham Hill, which he, he wasn't a Jim Clark. He tried very hard and succeed. For Ricardo, everything comes so easier. So um, he was a fabulous guy, really, really was. And properly quick. Oh, I'm, I'm sure he would have been one of the greatest. And, no, we would never know, but we never had the opportunity. But, but at the time, I mean, he was just mega. I mean, did, is it true that you shared a hotel room with him in Modena? In Modena? No, we didn't share a room, but because he was married by then. He was with his wife. Okay. But <laughs> in the same hotel. <laughs> no, in the same hotel. Before I, I had, they gave me a, a I used to, I call it a, a broom cover because it was a very small room, but I was paying almost nothing and in fact I didn't pay anything until I got my first job then I paid the hotel and then I got a little a little room in a, in a family in Modena now you also worked I mean your career is quite phenomenal I don't yes, think there's yes. another man alive who has had the career that you've had not I mean obviously outside of Formula 1 as well but even in Formula 1 and you were the best looking car the nicest looking car that I've I think ever seen in Formula 1 that Eagle Westlake Oh, Dan something else. Yeah, Dan. Did you realise at the time just what a beauty that was, or is it something that you only appreciate afterwards? Well, no, we, I think we did. And also because everybody come and tell us, you know. And you know, we have the first one to use the titanium exhaust pipes, and they, they were beautiful pipes made on the B12. So you have six pipes in and six the other one. And, and the colour was beautiful. And then the shape of the car, and you know the the cars on those days with no wings, with just proper racing cars, they they look beautiful. I love to see them every now and again, and um, and I love that they still have brackets that I made. You know, it's <laughs> that very car, even yeah. now, <laughs> even now. So, do yes. you remember Spa when Dan Gurney no. won that? Yeah, huge moment. 
fabulous, fabulous. I mean, that was our our first win. Well, we won the race of champions, but that was the first Grand Prix win for Eagle and for me. That was the first of my career in uh, of of a uh, hundred and sixteen, which is. Uh, Tell us about Dan Gurney. I mean, he he was. I mean, so so I'm told he was the one guy that Jim Clark really feared. Is Absolutely. that right? Yes, and in fact, it was a, in a race of champions once. Clark was leading. Um, Dan, I don't know, it was fourth or third or fourth, and then he would start catching up. He, he got behind Clark, and, and Clark was so worried, driving on his mirrors, and lost it. Unusual mistake for Jimmy to lost it in bottom bend, and uh, then went to lead the race, and then had a problem with the spark plugs, had to stop. To now, the, the story of Dan always had um, problem with the car, or changing teams at the wrong moment because he would, he should have been the first American world champion. He was, uh, well, not not the first because Phil Hill, well, Phil Hill was in '61, wasn't 61, there? Yeah. Yes. Mm. But it was a he great man. One of one yeah. of my the best bosses and friends I had, you know, even until his death last well, year. Just, Joe, what about how, you know the concept of being an owner driver back then? I mean, how did he juggle the two roles? I know it's sometimes we thought you know he should have we should let him to concentrate more on the driving. Um, but then he got a, a manager that he, he was doing that and he got a little better. Uh, but he, he was a great fiddler. He liked to do things all the time. So I remember we didn't have a, the pits that we have now in the spa. You know, we was walking at the back of the garage in the hill with the, in the gravel with the car. And I remember standing up on the door of the truck. The car was there in an uphill on the gravel. And he said... I think that uh, give it a little more toe in on the right front. You should, and yeah, look at it, it doesn't look me. So I give it, you have to. And then he, in, in the racetrack, he tries so hard that even if he changed something that wasn't good, he tried hard to show us that it was good. But then to, to he prove said, it was right. Yeah, to yeah. prove that it was right. <laughs> and then he said, I'll put it back how it was before because. It's easier to drive or whatever. And, and, but, uh, I, and I also like that he was the first one to introduce the Gurney flap, you know, the little lip that everybody put on the back of the rear wing. And up until these days, he still called the Gurney flap. Uh, so it was his idea. Did he propose that or was it one of you guys working? No, he proposed to do it. And then we have, and we put it on and they work and we have in five millimeters, 10 millimeters, three millimeters, all different sizes. Um, he was the first one to introduce the Bell Star helmet cover here. He was uh, 1968, he used it for the first time. And he did a few innovations for racing. And, and of course he was the one that started shaking the champagne bottle at Le Mans when he won in, uh, 86. Yeah. I think a few people claim that. Doesn't Jackie Stewart claim it was him? No. no, no it was Dan, was it? It was, uh, it was Dan Gurney. It's, if you go to to the Moet factory, I think they keep... He gave them the bottle to some journalist, American journalist. And then this guy, he got ill. He said, look, I'm going to die soon, and I think the bottle is yours. You should keep it. So you and Dan had it in his house with a lampshade. <laughs> and, uh, and he had the sign 
everybody that came to his house and uh, have dinner or they had the and when I was there in Santana, which I was already with, when did we raise in, oh, in Long Beach, California. I went to his house with dinner with them and, and he had this lamp with all oh, the senators there, Clark, uh, oh, you name it, Americans and everyone. And he said, oh, you got to sign. No, no, Dan, I can't sign with all these superstars here, but I was pleased and I signed it. and. Uh, and then I believe that uh, when he started to get ill down himself, he gave it to to Moet. I'm not sure, or probably still in this in the in the factory. But they had a cabinet in there. Too. I love that the uh, tail of the champagne bottle, <laughs> <laughs> and it was Dan who did it, not Jackie Stewart. But talking of just say, because that was he did it in Le Mans the first time, and then the immediate the next weekend is when when he won Spa. In Formula One, so he did it then. So he was the first in sport cars and in Formula One because it was a one weekend apart. Jackie Stewart, Tyrrell, very different vibe. Obviously, I mean, there was what was it? The woodshed, I think. Yeah. That's where they built it. Um, just describe Tyrrell to me. What? How different was it to what you'd experienced before? I think the period that I worked with Ken, that was one of my best stages of my life absolutely loved it it was a, a real family team everybody pulled the same way we all helped each other there was no politics bitching anything on the team it was unbelievable I, i'm very proud of a picture i have in my book where it's 25 of us and that was the team the six of us that got to the races the rest that built the cars the factory including the accounts and it's amazing. It was 25 people, including uh, uh, Nora, Ken's wife. Incredible team. It was superb. And when I joined McLaren, there were 64 of us. When I left McLaren, it was close to 800. It's amazing. <laughs> it's, you know, just well, that was so. Yeah. But with Ken, it was it was really super. You know, having dinner with um, he was always very good to. Everybody, all the team was, they were quite small team, stay in the same hotels. Like in Austria, we stay in a, in a, somebody's house, big house, and he accommodated. It and was with Jackie and Francois. Jackie they and would Francois. Stay with you? Yes, we stayed all together. We had dinner all together, and I, it was a, a proper family team. I was just remember, I was talking to Jackie early in the morning because somebody, Asked me, ah no, I was talking with Simon uh, from um, Sky TV because he was he he was watching at practice and he had this little telephone in watching at the um, the cricket, the Ashes, and I said, oh, once an Englishman, always an Englishman, and, and it reminded me of of Ken Tyrrell. Oh, so he loved his cricket. Oh, didn't he? so much. And it, I was talking to Jackie. I remember when. I think it was Brian Sachi, Jackie come in and Ken, this car is undrivable, understeer, oversteer. Uh, and Ken laughed. He said, You seen you got troubles. England is 305 or <laughs> 7 <laughs> at Lords. So you can imagine. It was uh, brilliant. Might have been lost on a Scotsman, yeah. maybe, that comment. I don't know. But, uh, were you surprised? I mean, such a close knit team at Tyrrell that. When Francois lost his life in Watkins Glen, were you surprised that Jackie didn't make the start the next day? He chose not to start the race. Did that surprise you, or given everything you expected? 
Yes, I think he did, because it would have been his 100th Grand Prix, and he had a pretty good chance of winning it. And, and I can't remember exactly at the time whether if he was Ron, or sorry, Ron Ken or Jackie that decided to respect um, the memory of Francois decided to pull off the race, but uh, maybe what that wouldn't be what Francois would have wanted. I, it was a tough decision. The worst thing of that weekend after the death of Francois is that having to go to his room and collect all his things and his briefcase and put it all together to take it to the family. And I believe that briefcase was never open for 40 years until a few years ago when it was the 40th anniversary of the death and they made uh, something in Paris. I was invited, but I couldn't go. And my friend, Jackie went and, and I think that they opened the briefcase then. It, it's amazing. Has the camaraderie among the drivers, the friendship among the drivers changed? Oh, big time. Yes, that's probably one of the things that changed a lot there was much more united kind of cloth. Um, now, you know, and the GD, GPDA practically don't exist, it's there, but it's so hard and it's, uh, not, you know, Lewis Hamilton don't approve of it or don't go to the meetings or don't know, I don't know, but you know, uh, it's bad because he, the top guys are the ones that they have to make it work. and. A lot of the things that they criticize about the sport is because they themselves don't get together to fight for a better this or better that. But um, everybody had to, their own agendas, just like the teams, you know, so it's very difficult to... I think the GPDA is probably stronger, actually, at the minute than it's been for a while. But I always think it's the advent of private jets that has ruined the camaraderie, because now... Two hours after the end of the race, the drivers have all disappeared. Whereas, I guess back in the day, everyone was on the same plane and yeah, yeah. travel was yeah. harder back then, wasn't it? So you may have had to spend an extra night in the hotel after the race, or you know, yeah. that's yeah, something that's changed. The yeah. special charter flights and yeah, yeah, very few people have planes, and uh, yes, it was. Um, all that have changed, and of course, there's so many more races now. People want a little bit of time at home, and uh, well, we've got, they're talking about 22, 23 <laughs> yeah. next year. But so, look, Joe. I mean, you, you're a man who you we, we could talk to literally for hours. But if I were to say to you, of all your Formula One memories, is there one moment that stands out? Uh, it's very difficult. I mean, poof, I had. Uh, I had a really exceptional career. I've been lucky to born when I did. And, but I've always, is one that always, the, the Adelaide Grand Prix in 1993, which is the last race that Ayrton won with McLaren. It was an exceptional weekend. I, I think I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And <laughs> although it was a sad weekend, but anyway, we put the car on pole and it was the first, first pole of the Cosworth engine for 10 years. And, and just before the start, um, 
it was the last race re, for Alain Prost. He was retiring. So it was an, another person that was very close to me and to the team. Um, we were at the par with uh, Ferrari with uh, 103 wins each. So whoever wins Adelaide would have been 104 and up till the moment, the most successful Grand Prix team. And I remember at the start, just before the start, Ayrton kind of called me and I didn't realize why, like if he was wanting me to do his belts, but normally he did it himself. He did the, the last pull on the bell. He just wanted to talk to me without doing it on the radio for everybody to listen, you know. So um, he grabbed me by the arm, very strong, and he said, Joe, I feel so strange to do this for the last time on a McLaren. And I said, well, if you think you feel strange, imagine us. We didn't want you to go, so we, we want to miss you. But, and then I said, I can't tell you how important this race is for us to win. So if you win this, I would love you forever. And then I saw his eyes were kind of wet, you know, and I thought, bloody hell, I made it emotional and the race is about to start, you know. But like a good Latin, he was a very emotional guy, but he, he could control it. And then, of course, won the race. After the race, it was Tina Turner concert in the ground, sort of. And uh, he, we were there in the front row and he took her to, to the stage and danced with her, simply the best. You know, if a song is been, is been sung at, at the best moment, that was that. It was just... More incredible. tears, I'm guessing. Oh, <laughs> the whole stadium was just about yeah. to go, you know. Yeah. It's, uh, and I still, I got the video, and it's still not strong enough to see it. No. <laughs> Joe, but every really. time I hear, every time I hear Tina Turner, I, I really, you <laughs> know. You're a fan. Yeah, yes. So you must be pleased, I guess, to see McLaren on the way back it seems they've had a, a, much. a much better season so oh, far haven't they gosh, this year yes yes i'm very pleased and uh, very surprised i think we're all very surprised how quick lando norris have become uh, when they first got him and i thought god i needed somebody stronger to push carlos but by god he's got stronger and how much has he changed what Formula One do to you? You know, last year it was a very, I don't know, timid, uh, doesn't speak, doesn't, you know, and now it's... it's Lando, um, yeah. Yeah, Lando, it's... it's They're a great team, good. actually, and yeah. Carlos, yeah, great guy get, as well. Isn't they it? get on yeah. well. Yeah. They're driving really good, so yeah. it's good. I'm really, yeah. really and old, pleased. old Hamilton's still... Yeah. Still doing the business, isn't he, at the front? Yeah, with the car they have. I mean, Mercedes have really reached perfection, you know. And when something, when they, when they not quick on this Friday, they get around. They quick on the Saturday. They are really perfectionists. They are, you know. I said to Toto, Toto say, "Oh, come on, don't say you you don't the same." I said, "No, no, we, we don't it just for a few years, but you're just uh, doing it too long and too much. Sometimes you still have the first. Uh, the two Mercedes first and second and the third car half a minute later is just the domination has been far too strong and too long you said that to Toto yeah. Wolf <laughs> I'm sure he, he welcomed that you know but it's not your fault it's not their fault I think my heart with them they the ones I get it right is everybody else's fault yeah. for sure but 
I know he himself admitted, yes, we would like a little bit more uh, because it's better for the sport and, and you need to be pushed, you know. But I mean, this is the fascination of the sport. And I you're guess, still it's, so it's, passionate uh, about it. That's what I love. Oh, oh, Do you is, watch all the races now, even oh, the ones you're not Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And I watch it with Movie Start in uh, Spain, which is doing incredible program. This 24 hours Grand Prix every day. You have all Grand Prix. And during the race, they have uh, Pedro de la Rosa, which is fantastic. And Tony Hungarella, which is very good on the technical side. Uh, Albert, oh, they have an incredibly team, very, very good. So I hope we always have. Um, They're going to enjoy this yeah, podcast. Yeah, I hope we have a <laughs> what do you call it? Um, a Spanish driver, and they they keep doing it, movie star, because it's become so expensive to do it now. Whatever, I don't care how much I had to pay because I had to pay. I had to see them. There's no, no way, but I can see that many people they going out of the sport because this too expensive and because it's been boring but we have shown well, this year now. there's no boring now the last four races you know I know with Leclerc uh, and, and uh, Verstappen they really well, showing and in a sense and Lando as well so the, the new young generation is they're coming through pushing they? yeah well Joe what a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much yeah, for sharing you. some, um, some um, of those memories. You don't look a day older than when I first uh, met you 25 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, I'm kind of um, uh, overwhelmed that you have chosen me among all those top people that you have made. Joe, the, pleasure the to program. speak to you. Yes. Thank you very much. Thank you. What a racing life. Can you imagine trying to keep the peace between Senna and Prost when they couldn't even look at each other or having to pick yourself up after the loss of Francois Saver at Watkins Glen in 1973? The stories were endless and the insight was immeasurable. Thank you, Joe, for sharing so many extraordinary moments. I loved our chat and I look forward to seeing you again at this year's Mexican Grand Prix. Well, that's it for another episode, but we'll be back next week with another guest brimming with can't-miss anecdotes. Until then, why not subscribe to Be On The Grid if you haven't already? And thanks for your feedback about last week's episode with Jackie X. Not only was he brilliantly quick, he was one of the sport's great survivors, and he was also seriously cool. Something that wasn't lost on listener Peter Haynes. How can Jackie X fail to realise that he was and probably still is the coolest man on the planet, says Peter. Absolutely fascinating Beyond the Grid interview. Well, thanks, Peter, and I couldn't agree with you more about Jackie. He was, and he still is, unbelievably cool. And please keep the feedback coming. We love it. Remember to use the hashtag F1BeyondTheGrid and you can tweet me at Tom F one Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audioboom. Until next time, keep it flat out.